This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I have a... I have a controversial opinion. This morning, happy to be with you. Mike, filling in from Restoring the Faith Media, on the last live radio station there is Mike the King Dude himself. Couldn't be here this morning, and so he found a lesser man. But I'm still, notwithstanding that fact, happy to be here with you, and I have a controversial opinion. Surprise, surprise. Some of you know that... um, well, there's this man named Elon Musk. Have you heard of him? Elon Musk? He's a billionaire. Started Tesla. SpaceX. And there's some brain neurology company that he is has also started uh, with the stated goal of putting chips in everyone's heads that, for some reason, conservatives don't like talking about that one. That one's always like the asterisk like the one that nobody talks about. So here's my controversial opinion. Musk is not and never was going to buy Twitter. Yeah, sorry. I hate to break it to you. Twitter is always going to be an alt-left tech oligarch platform designed to censor conservative speech, hate speech, as they call it. And Elon Musk, not only is he not going to ride in to save the day, uh, but he was always planning on bailing on the deal. All right, I got to break this deal down for you. What we're going to do in this first hour here this morning on the Crusade channel We're going to break down exactly why I'm telling you that Elon Musk is not going to buy Twitter. You have to understand the the mechanics of the leverage buyout, the so-called reasons for him putting the deal on hold, and what I think is really going on behind the scenes. And it is so devious, it is so nefarious, That if any of you in the audience right now are thinking, okay, Elon Musk, he's at least a free speech guy, you're going to be left befuddled, bewildered, disheveled. You're going to be scratching your head thinking to yourself, wow, I can't believe I fell for even that. Okay, first, let's start with the deal. Because... The deal is probably the biggest tell. And the deal, ladies and gentlemen, this is so important that we understand this. The mechanics of the of the of the buyout offer that Elon Musk put on the table. So, how does it work? Well, think about it like a mortgage. 
in your typical mortgage scenario, you put 10 or 20% down and you finance the rest, right? So if you're going to buy a house for, let's just say, $200,000 and the bank says you have to put 10% down, so you come up with $20,000 from your cash, that's called your equity, and then the $180,000 you borrow, that's the debt component. So it's a debt and equity component deal. And in a way, purchasing a house with a mortgage is a leveraged buyout, by definition. Because the term leverage refers to the fact that the majority of the financing package is debt. It's leverage. So you will obtain a fair amount of leverage to buy the house. Now, in the case of the leveraged buyout of a house, the mortgage is securitized against the asset. In other words, the bank owns the house until you pay them off. The same holds true in a leveraged buyout deal in corporate America. A leveraged buyout, the the, the LBO craze really started in the 80s. Once the high financiers figured out that they could use a bunch of debt to buy companies and very little cash, they could slam a bunch of companies together, affect some layoffs, take some jobs overseas, and bada bing, bada boom, now you have a bigger company making more money and then you can sell it to the next guy who's also going to assemble a huge debt package, put in very little cash, and keep the asset going. Some brands that you might be familiar with have been traded by private equity firms, leveraged buyout firms, over and over and over again. They have been pumped and dumped to the next fool who thinks that he can cut costs, offshore jobs, improve processes, and achieve what they call in the business synergy. Synergy. For example, some of it, sometimes synergy works. If I were to buy 15 plumber businesses in a local market, put them all under one roof, you could combine the billing, the paying, the dispatching, the, the supply warehouse, the branding. You could combine all that under uh, you know a couple people. And so you save a bunch of time. That's called synergy. So you do payroll. You do all that stuff. Back office stuff. So you can achieve a fair amount of synergy, right? Now you got 15 little plumber businesses all under one roof, all under one brand. Now you got something. You can do so you can do one consolidated marketing push for that brand and it helps all 15 of the plumbers. You can centrally manage their cars, their their trucks, right? So you can make sure that everything is maintained up to code etc. <clears throat> so in in certain cases in limited ways synergy works. It's not like 
I'm not saying that there's no such thing as synergy. What I am saying is that very often these leverage buyout financiers, Harvard MBAs, Stanford MBAs, MIT MBAs, I know this because I worked across from them. I sold businesses to these people. I know how they work. They are looking, when they say synergy, they're really looking at firing people, cutting costs, laying people off, taking jobs offshores, and bringing and, and improving net margins. And if you can improve net margins in a business and grow it, you have a really good chance of what they call a successful exit. So every time somebody affects a leverage buyout of a business, they, they have a gun to their head on the exit because a lot of times they have a big balloon pay, debt payment hanging over their head way out in the 7 to 10 year range. And so instead of making that balloon payment, they just want to dump the business within 3 to 5 years, perhaps make 5 to 10 times cash on cash on their, on their equity investment, share some of that upside with their investors, and then keep the rest. This is how the Wall Street leveraged buyout firms work. They make their money on doing deals, what I told you two days ago, that you and I don't have access to. And a great number of brands that you have heard of and are familiar with have gone through this process many, 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 many times. For example, uh, LA Fitness... I'm sure that wherever you're listening to this broadcast on the Crusade channel, the last live radio station standing, by the way, you may have an LA Fitness near you, or you may have heard of it. LA Fitness is one of those brands that has been owned by private equity for 20-something years. They have, they have, they have done what's, what is similar to a cash-out refi, on a house. If you've ever done a cash out refi, if you've said to yourself, hey, I have this house, the market says it's worth 500000 I bought it 20 years ago for 100000 I only have 50000 of debt on it right now. The market says it's worth 500000 How about I put some more debt on it and just take that cash out and do what I want with it? <laughs> and 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 pay pay you know pay down the mortgage over time. Maybe it's a rental property at this point. Have someone else pay the debt. That is a cash out refi, and that's that's also called a debt recapitalization. That's happened to LA Fitness many many times in the last twenty years. The 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 leverage buyout firm that bought it instead of dumping it, they've just put debt on the business over and over and over again, and then use the proceeds of that debt to just pocket the cash and to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I think even hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. Hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into the pockets of the Wall Street bankers who did a leverage buyout of, of, um, of LA Fitness. But because the franchise has been growing and growing and growing and, and continues to be profitable, they've used debt. Okay, that's your overview of high finance of, on how LBOs work. As little cash in as possible, as much debt as possible. Why? So that juices your returns. That's why we, they, call, they call debt leverage. <laughs> it's a nice euphemism, isn't it? 
you're going, we're going to leverage our equity returns. We're going to leverage. When I think of leverage, I'm thinking of like a tire jack and getting some good elbow grease leverage on that puppy. Why am I thinking of a tire jack? Because my wife had a flat tire yesterday. Why did she have a flat tire yesterday? Because women shouldn't drive. But when they say leverage, ladies and gentlemen, they're referring to debt. Okay. Now, compare what I just told you to Elon Musk's Twitter deal. Elon Musk buying Twitter. First of all, he makes an offer. Makes an offer. And that offer is accepted by the board of directors. Now, more or less, he's in escrow. That doesn't mean he controls the business. This is, this is important, too. We'll get to this point here later on. He makes an offer. They accepted it. Now he has a time period to come up with the cash, close the deal. The, the estimated closing date initially was announced to be sometime in October. Today is the 15th of June in the year of our Lord, 2022. So we're several months out from this deal potentially closing, right? In the meantime... Does Musk own Twitter? No. Does he exercise operational control over Twitter? No. Okay, so the the offer. The offer was like 45 or 46 billion dollars. It was a typical premium to market offer. In other words, the stock is trading at some price and he's offering a price per share higher than what is currently trading out in the market. Makes the deal attractive. Makes the deal attractive. That's fine. And the shareholders accepted it. So, so, so far, so good. But when you just peel one layer back, one layer back, ladies and gentlemen, into the offer, you will find that Elon Musk, instead of putting as little cash into the deal as possible and using a bunch of leverage, which in today's terms, in today's leverage buyout market, you can get away with, you're pretty skinny on equity if you're doing 20 to 25% equity. In other words, 75 to 80% debt. You're pretty skinny. But, but more or less, let's just call it, the, the rule of thumb is a third equity, two-thirds debt. A third equity, two-thirds debt. So what you would have expected to see In that offer, $46 billion times 0.3333333, you would have expected that, okay, Musk is going to put up $15, million of ca- $15 billion of cash, $15 billion of cash, and he's going to get the rest, the other $30 billion from the banks. From an army of banks, too. They, they like to, what's called, syndicate these big deals out. In other words, everyone likes to share in the cookie jar. The usurious cookie jar gets passed around in a syndicated deal. And what happens is B of A gets their piece. Citigroup gets their piece. Morgan Stanley gets a piece. Goldman takes a piece. Wells takes a piece. Pretty much everybody that you can think of wants in on this deal, PNC. So they'll all say, okay, well I'll I'll put I'll I'll lend a billion. Or I'll lend two billion or I'll lend five billion. So he cobbles together this syndication of creditors. 
Don't you love all these euphemisms in high finance? Who are going to put in the other two-thirds. But is that what he did? No, that's not what he did. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Elon Musk, the genius behind Tesla, he didn't say, I'm going to put as little cash in as possible. He said, I'm going to put as much cash in as possible. Instead of saying, I'm going to put $15 billion of cash in so that I can go get $30 billion of debt, he said, I'm going to put 30 or $35 billion of my own cash in, and then I'll go get 10 or $15 billion in debt. His quote-unquote leveraged buyout was flip-flop. It was the inverse of how leveraged buyouts typically work. He was debt light instead of debt heavy. Imagine going to buy a house and you say, oh, there's this $100,000 house. I think I'll put $80,000 down and get a mortgage for $20,000. Yeah, you could do that, absolutely. And if you're in a position to do that, I don't think it's a bad idea. But no one could argue that that's a typical mortgage arrangement, right? Nobody would argue that. So let's unpack this for a second, okay? Let's unpack this. Elon Musk now has an excuse to go out and raise $30 billion of his cash. Now, does he have $30 billion in cash sitting in a bank? No, he doesn't. Is he worth that much? Yeah, on paper he is. Well, what do you mean, Mike? Well, what I mean is he owns a bunch of Tesla stock. And Tesla stock is traded every day. It's liquid. It has a market value. And so in theory, he could go out and sell a bunch of Tesla stock to other investors out on the street. And he could use his Tesla stock. Over time, he's not going to sell $30 billion in one day. But over time, between now and October, he can flood the market with shares available for sale from him. People will scoop them up. And he will then have the cash money to put into the Twitter deal. One other thing you need to know about CEOs, executives trading in their own stocks. One thing you should know. Usually, usually, if a founder CEO of a publicly traded business starts selling massive amounts of his holdings, that has incredibly heavy downward pressure on the stock. Why is that? Well, because people assume, hey, this guy is running the business and he might know something that we don't know. He's getting out of this thing. He's got insider information and he's making a trade out. He's not buying shares. He is exiting. He is shorting his position in his own company. That usually drives the stock down. I bet some of you can see where I'm going with this already. I bet, I bet some of you in the live chat, crusadechannel.com slash crusaderstadium, or just slash chat, 
I bet you in the Crusader Stadium chat right now know exactly where I'm going. Wait a second. So normally, if I sell down $30 billion of my own holdings in my own company, normally that, that tanks the stock? Yeah, it does. Normally it does. But what if you have a pretext to do it? What if you have announced the most public, largest, quote-unquote, leveraged buyout deal in modern times? Everyone knows why you need to raise the cash. Nothing to see here, ladies and gentlemen. Just, I, I hate to do it. I really hate to sell these shares because I love Tesla. It's my baby. But I do have to sell the stock. It's nothing against Tesla. It's just that I have to raise the money for Twitter. Nothing to see here. So my point is and has been since the deal announcement, I'm the only person who has made this point. And I think I even convinced LifeSite to let me stick a paragraph in there explaining that this could be a ruse. Now, back up. Back up. Zoom out. What has happened to the equity market? Just even in the last week, even since I was talking to you on Black Monday. Total collapse. The NASDAQ, which is the tech stocks, are off by what, 40% from their highs? We're, in, we're officially in bear market territory, for sure. No doubt about that. Even MSNBC is finally, who is, who is loath to admit that there is any weakness in this Biden build back better economy. Even MSNBC is saying, yeah, we're in bear market territory. But guess who got out? Unscathed. Guess who got out? Mr. Musk. Mr. Genius Billionaire seated by the CIA... Mr. Musk. He got out. He got out of the stock before it tanked. Some of you in the Crusader Stadium are pointing out that his stock has gone from 1200 to 650 in the last few months. Yeah, that's true. If you were to sum up the cardinal rule of business, all business, Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. That's principle one. That's, uh, that's marketing, that's products, that's anything. The other principle is the time value of money. I'd rather have a dollar today than a dollar tomorrow. We talked about time value of money on Monday, Black Monday. Today we're talking about buy low, sell high. Now you can, at the end of both of these times, I get to fill in for the king dude himself on this magnificent microphone. You can now... Basically, call yourself a graduate of business school because if you go to business school, you learn two things. Buy low, sell high, and I'd rather have a dollar today than a dollar tomorrow because of the time value of money. So what am I saying here? I'm saying that Elon Musk probably knew that quantitative easing, deficit spending could only take the market so far. I'm saying that there is a very good chance 
that Musk was looking out at the economy with $5 a gallon gas, 10% inflation, housing crisis, tight labor market, food shortages coming, both planned and unplanned. I think he took a look at the landscape and said, I've got to figure out how to sell my, t- my Tesla shares without tanking my own stock, without taking down my own company. I've got to exit this thing before the market takes a dump on it, but I've got to do so without raising an eyebrow for, from any of my institutional investors. I've got to keep the Black Rocks of the world happy, I've got to keep Vanguard happy. I don't want anyone at Goldman to suspect what I'm doing. So, without putting his shareholders into a panic, he created a ruse, a reason, a reason, a pretext to liquidate his shares. He says, look, nothing to see here. I'm simply trading my ownership interests in Tesla for an ownership interest in Twitter. This is this is uh, standard procedure. Shouldn't raise an eyebrow. But, ladies and gentlemen, lo and behold, lo and behold, I as the sole voice in Catholic media raising the alarm bell saying, I don't think this deal is going to happen. It's not closing yet. You know, there were people, there were people like, Christine Niles at Church Militant, who was celebrating that Musk is buying Twitter. Thank God Musk is buying Twitter. Maybe he'll give me a blue check mark. Maybe he'll un he'll unshadow ban my account. So I can get more than three likes on my tweets. Celebrating Musk. The free speech warrior. Yes, he must be one of us if he believes in free speech. We're gonna get to that, don't worry. I'm gonna ask. Brother Andre Marie about free speech, so-called, in about an hour here when he comes on. But there were people celebrating the Musk deal. Musk is going to save me. He's going to take me out of Twitter jail. He's going to make sure that I can grow my Twitter account. All right, fine. Enough making fun of fake news journalists. These people who were celebrating the Musk deal never bothered to look at the deal. They never bothered to look and say, hey, this is weird. Why is he putting so much cash into the deal? A. Why is the closing date so far out in the future? B. Why is the deal subject to so much, so so many items of diligence that have not even been... <laughs> Undertaken yet. In other words, why is Musk giving him all kinds of outs? C. Oh, and he didn't put any earnest money down. That's weird. Well, okay. In leveraged buyouts, to be fair, it's not weird. You don't normally put earnest money down. To buy a house, you have to put earnest money down so that they know that you're serious. But so far as we know, Musk has no skin in the game, simply announces a deal, 
makes an offer on paper, offer gets accepted, and he has every out. All right, so let's talk about his out just for a second. I want to talk about his out, and then I want to also talk about the weird period of time in which things seem to change on the tweeters. And by the way, I I know that a lot of you are not on the tweeter, and I think that's good. That's probably good for your soul. I wish I didn't have to be on the tweeter. I don't like the tweeter. The tweeter sometimes gets me into trouble. I'm sure some of you know something about that. But the tweeter is important. It is. It's important. Barack Hussein Obama was able to use the tweeter and other social media effectively to steal the White House. Social media is part of our lives, whether we like it or not. We can personally choose not to partake in social media, and I think that's fine. In fact, I think that's good. But that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant or unimportant. So you're saying to yourself, Mike, from Restoring the Faith Media, RestoringTheFaith.com, Restoring the Faith on YouTube, why are you talking about the tweeter? I hate the tweeter. I'm not, I, I've never tweeted. I'm talking about it today because it is important. We're coming up on midterm elections. Uh, we have... Elected officials making official announcements on the Twitter. Liz Cheney, Adam Schiff, both members of the January 6th committee, which, by the way, the January 6th committee, which is going on right now, there has been a huge uptick in violent deaths recently uncovered by this January 6th committee. Did you know that? Yeah, the number of people who are watching it who just die of boredom, it's through the roof. It's skyrocketing. But Schiff and Shaney, Schiff Shaney, Shifty Shaney, both of both of those elected officials who hate Trump tweeted within one hour of each other two absolutely contradictory things. One said, we are going to make criminal referrals to the DOJ. One said, we are not going to make criminal referrals to the DOJ. This is why the tweeter is important, because you can see the public statements in writing from these people, and you can hold them accountable. Especially when they're not even, quote-unquote, on message. Okay, so uh, that's why the tweeter is important, why I'm talking about it. Let's talk about operational control of Twitter for a second. So a weird thing happened. A weird thing happened recently with respect to the Twitter. On the day that Twitter, the Twitter board of directors accepted Elon Musk's offer to buy the company, the take private, the leveraged take private, They accepted the offer on that very day. Suddenly, notorious conservative accounts were restored, which had been suspended and banned. Shadow banning of conservatives seemed to end. Twitter Felt for a while 
like a place where you could say what you really thought about something without fear of immediately going to Twitter jail, or worse. Memes could be shared, jokes could be shared, satire could be written, opinions that are unapproved by Trudeau or other regimes around the world could be written. You could say things suddenly on Twitter that you couldn't say anymore. Like, for example, the day before Musk's deal was accepted by the board of directors of Twitter, the day before, you could not say a man is a man and a woman is a woman on Twitter. You couldn't say that. That's hate speech. Then suddenly, on the day that they accepted the offer, merely for accepting the offer, Twitter opened up. And you could say, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And people were testing it too. They were like, test, test. These tweets were going viral. Tens of thousands of likes and shares. This gave people the impression that Elon Musk was already in charge. It was as though a switch was flipped in the back room of Twitter and suddenly it became open, free, fair. The marketplace of ideas that it had always promised to be, it was finally going to fulfill that dream. That is what Twitter felt like for about a week, maybe more, after deal announcement. And there again, I was one of the only people in Catholic media who I'm I'm like taking a step back. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, people. I'm just saying, when you look at this thing with, with critical eyes, not with emotions, it's very clear to me what we were seeing. We were, we were witnessing some kind of op. Because, look, you don't even have to be a tech genius, and I'm not a tech genius, to surmise the fact that there is no button, hotkey, switch to just suddenly stop shadow banning conservatives, to absolutely reconfigure the Twitter algorithm. There's no easy way to do that. There's no, hey, I'm, let me just do this real quick. Done. Could you hear me typing furiously on my keyboard? Oh, I just opened up Twitter, boss. Meanwhile, Elon Musk, who doesn't own the company, standing over his shoulder. Yes, excellent. Yes, open it up. We're going to make this a free speech platform, finally. Folks. It would be as if, here's, here's, here's the analogy, going back to real estate. And again, why like fake news journalists like Christine Niles at Church Militant are so stupid. It would be as if you submit an offer to buy a house, the seller accepts your offer, and you open up a 45-day escrow. But that same exact day that they accepted your offer... Magically, your kitchen is redone. Magically, your bathroom is redone. You have like the frameless shower doors. You know those really expensive ones? You didn't have them the day before the offer was accepted, but the day after, you have them now. You've got the Viking or Decor Sub-Zero kitchen. 
you used to have tile countertops. Now you have what's 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 better than I, I don't even know what the best countertops are. You have the top of the line countertops, whatever it is. I don't have it in my house, but whatever it is, you have it now. Overnight, folks, that type of stuff takes time. You have to have a whole crew of people working for days, weeks. You have to buy the materials. You have to pay the money. But it would be as if you, the, 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 the seller accepts your offer and suddenly HGTV came in overnight, right? The crew, and they did a total remodel on the house. And the house you're buying is now so awesome. And it's a totally different house than the, than the house that you bid on. So that's more or less what we lived through. We lived through the idea that all of a sudden, because Elon Musk put in an offer on Twitter that the entire algorithm changed, that the platform changed, the website changed, the mechanics of it changed, what gets presented to you changed, what gets allowed to be shared, who's allowed on the platform, the shadow banning, all of it, it all changed overnight. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that insane? Isn't that a little bit... Doesn't that raise your eyebrows a little bit? Because here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter. Christine, I'm so sorry. I I wish you were higher intelligence, but you're just not. I think you should be smart to to, to portray yourself as an investigative journalist. I really do. But here's the really sad part. Elon Musk wasn't even in charge. And he's still not in charge. He's still not in charge of Twitter. He exercises no day-to-day operational control of Twitter. When you're buying a house, you might take your interior designer with you if you're one of these rich people. Let's say you are a rich Elon Musk type person. You're going to go buy a house. I'm going to go through this house with my designer, with my contractor. I'm, I might go through with my with my... All kinds of people. My executive chef. And we're going to plan all the things we're going to do. We're going to make plans on what we're going to do. We're going to move this wall. We're going to do these colors, these materials here. Open this up, these appliances. I can't wait. I can't wait to own the house so that I can do these changes. You're going to plan all these things that you're going to do in the future. In some hypothetical world in which you do buy the house. Right? It's a contingent event. It's contingent upon you closing and buying the house. But Elon Musk didn't buy the house. And yet, he's getting all the credit for making changes to the house that he doesn't yet own. Why is there an effort to heroize and lionize Elon Musk? Who is Elon Musk? Is he really this crusader of free speech? This suddenly reformed right of center libertarian-ish conservative 
who is now going to be the white knight, the hero who rides in to save Twitter. Is that who he is? And why did everyone fall for it? Everyone fell for it. All the talking heads, especially in Catholic media. Is it really that easy to deceive? Here's a question. If I allow your Twitter account to grow a little bit faster than it normally grows... Is that how cheap buying your loyalty is? There are some die-hard Elon Musk people in Catholic media right now. I want to pull up a picture and put it into the... Stadium chat. I want everyone to see who Elon Musk is. What I'm showing you is a picture of him at a high-profile Los Angeles event in which he is dressed as an anti-priest. Instead of a white-collar, And black clerics, he's wearing a black collar and white clerics. Standing next to him is someone who can only be described charitably and accurately as a witch. Or possibly a vampire. Elon Musk is not a crusader of the conservative cause. He's not a Catholic. He's not necessarily on our side. And yet, this is my point here. Well, really, there's two points. The first point is is that we are so desperate for leadership that we are willing to suspend our own critical thinking. We're willing to suspend our own logical thought processes. In order to what? In order to feel like we have someone in our corner, like someone's fighting for us, like someone has our back. What I want you to reflect on, dear listeners of this illustrious radio show is are there times in our own lives where we have fell prey to puppet leaders, false leaders? There's a really wicked philosopher named Hegel who put forth what's called the Hegelian dialectic. Fancy schmancy terms. Hegelian dialectic, what does that mean? It basically says there's a, there's a three-step process to capturing people's 
attention, and their will. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you, you control the problem from the beginning to the end. You know what you want in the end. You want to create Credibility, likability, and Elon Musk for some reason, and, and we can speculate about why that is, but clearly that's what they want. So in order to do that, you have to go through the process of thesis-antithesis synthesis. Thesis. Twitter is a great platform. It should be open and free. It's a, it's a new social media platform. People can share ideas. 256 characters. Democratizes opinion. Freedom of speech. Don't we love freedom of speech? I'm going to get into that in the next hour. Antithesis. Twitter's actually this tech oligarch, Silicon Valley, alt-left platform that hates conservatives and it keeps jailing them, putting them into, into, into suspension. It's really only letting liberals talk. Everyone else gets censored. Synthesis. Elon Musk is here to save the day. Elon Musk is here to right the wrong. Okay? Synthesis, antithesis, Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? That's the Hegelian dialectic. So I think I, I think it's pretty clear to you, to me, to everyone, that someone is propping up Elon Musk. They're not just propping him up, but go back to the very first part of this show, the the the, the high finance that we had to get that we had to work through in order to understand what's really happening here with dollars and cents. They're not propping up Elon Musk merely in the eyes of the public as a sort of now reformed right of center guy so that he can just sell Teslas to conservatives now. He's always sold Teslas to conservatives. It's not just limousine liberals that are buying Teslas. I know plenty of conservatives that drive Teslas. I think it's hypocritical of them. I think it's really dumb. But whatever. It's not just about his public image. It's about the fact that he was able to sell down $30 billion of Tesla stock, A, without tanking the stock, B, now he's got all this liquidity. And my contention to you is that he probably doesn't plan to use it to buy Twitter. So what is he going to use it for? Well, we don't know. We don't know at this point. We don't get to know. But the Klaus Schwabs of the world, the Bill Gates of the world, I bet you they know. I bet you they get to know. When a connected, famous, liberal, Satanist billionaire has liquidity, cash money in the bank, ready to spend on things. 
That should cause all of us to shudder. When the cabal has dry powder, we should be skeptical. At a minimum, large alarm bells in the back of our minds should be going off. Wait a second. Musk got out of his Twitter position unscathed, without raising an eyebrow. Not one institutional investor asked one tough question. Now he's putting this Twitter deal on hold, ostensibly because there are so many bots. Man, I ran out of time in this hour to even explain what that meant. He says he's not going to buy Twitter right now because there are too many bots on Twitter. You and I all know. We have all know that there are bots on Twitter. Fake accounts, spam accounts. We all know that. If you've ever been on the Twitter for longer than 15 seconds, you know that there are a bunch of fake spam bot accounts. And Mr. Musk is no stranger to the Twitter. At least in his subjective experience of using the Twitter, he would have known that there are bots on the Twitter. But now suddenly he's surprised by the fact that there are so many. It's shocking to him. He's doing his due diligence on purchasing the asset, and he's really concerned now that there may be more bots on this platform than I really thought. Or maybe less. So now he's putting off the deal. The deal is on hold. My contention is that the deal may never actually happen. This is worth our time in considering. Why are they propping up Elon Musk? Why does he have $30 billion in cash now ready to spend on anything right as the recession begins? And why did everyone fall into the deception? This is Mike with Restoring the Faith Media. Filling in for the King Dude. First hour in the books. Next hour, we'll talk about freedom of speech and whether or not Elon Musk is really our guy. Is it bad that I celebrate bad news? I don't hate bad news. I just look at it as, well, it's news. It's news. Coinbase lays off 18% of workforce as executives prepare for recession and quote-unquote crypto winter. This is a breaking CNBC breaking news. Also breaking on CNBC, U.S. safety agency says Tesla accounts for most driver assist crashes, but warns data lacks context. Maybe that's why Musk got out of Tesla, because he knows the truth. Can we talk about, can I rag on crypto for a minute? Can we just take a little detour here this morning? And talk about crypto. I look, I know that some people are totally into it. I get it. I get it. I don't want to be the US dollar either. I don't want the IRS tracking my movements. I like anonymity. I like the distributed nature of cryptocurrencies. But as one of you said in the 
Crusader Stadium in the last hour when we were talking about Elon Musk. You said, Mike, you need to learn the word honeypot. Oh, I know what the word honeypot is. You're right. I need to say the word honeypot more often. And you know what is the perfect descriptor of a honeypot? I, I think it's Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is the biggest honeypot in the history of mankind. You're kidding me, right? You're kidding me that we don't know who this wonderful, good-hearted philanthropist, founder of cryptocurrency is? The author of the white paper with a Japanese surname. We don't we don't know who are you kidding me? That has NSA honeypot written all over it. Cryptocurrency is designed and peddled as a way for the common man to invest in an alternative asset. But it's not even an asset, ladies and gentlemen. It's it's ones and zeros. It's a digital asset. It's imaginary. It doesn't actually exist. You know, you're hearing my voice right now through a digital connection. I am speaking into an analog microphone which is connected to a sound bar which converts the analog signal into a digital signal. It is transmitted across the interwebs, in this case via a user application called Skype. (laughs) It hits the Crusade Channel studio, and from there is broadcast out to you, fine, wonderful people. But I exist. I'm real. Even though you're hearing my voice as a digital set of packets, I'm sitting here in my office right now talking to you. We're communicating. We're having a real conversation. And if you're in... The Crusader Stadium right now. We are having a conversation. There are 80 of you in here and you are keeping me honest. You're making sure I don't screw this up. Look, this is big time. I get to fill in for the King Dude two times in one week? Man, what did I do for, to, uh, to, uh, to deserve this? All right, so cryptocurrency, on the other hand, it's also ones and zeros. But it's ones and zeros that are derived, they are the derivative, rather, of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. They are an invention, a creation, out of nothing. It is not like, okay, when I swipe my debit card, there's a payment processor 
who undertakes the work of connecting my bank account to that point of sale. And my bank account has a electronic signal on how many dollars are sitting in the bank account right now. But those dollars could be withdrawn at any point in time. And those dollars are paper money, which used to be worth something in metal currency. Okay, so at least I'm like, what? How many steps is that? Six, seven, eight? I'm, I'm eight steps removed from gold. Okay, all right, fine. With cryptocurrency, you're infinity steps removed from gold because it's not, it's derived from nothing. Here's what I think it really is, just to cut to the chase, because I know we are having Wisdom Wednesday here in the next nine minutes or so. So I want to cut to the chase on this crypto thing. Here's what I believe is actually happening. I believe that faith in the United States dollar continues to wane. And as all of you already know, if you lack faith in the currency, the currency will fail because it's a fiat currency. It's not a currency that is based on gold or silver. It is a currency that is based on force or fiat. You are forced to believe in the effectiveness, efficaciousness. You are forced to believe that this currency is real. If you don't, then the government will just put you in jail. If you try to transact outside of the currency, if you say the U.S. dollar is not a real thing. Okay, fine. All right, well, I guess with the exclusive lethal use of force, the government has compelled me to say that the U.S. dollar is a real thing. But if enough of us wake up to the fact that it's monopoly money, then they have a real problem on their hands. You're talking about runs on banks. Banks only keep like 8% capital. sometimes even 5%. Their leverage ratios are through the roof. Even now, as we head into a recession, we're going to find out. Banks are going to run out of capital. But don't worry, dear taxpayer. You and I are going to bail them out. It'll be great. So my question is, as more people wake up to the weakness in the currency, as the ratio of gold to the U.S. dollar continues to widen. That's what they call the price of gold, right? The price of gold. They're like, oh, it's, what's the price of gold? Oh, it's a $1,200 an ounce or whatever. No, 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 no. It is the ratio of, of gold to the fiat currency. And that ratio is widening and widening and widening over time. What does that mean? Well, we know that gold is a pretty consistent asset. So if the ratio is widening, what does that tell us about the other thing to which we are comparing gold? Namely, the United States dollar, the fiat currency. If the fiat, if it takes more dollars to buy an ounce of gold today than it did yesterday, it's not because the value of gold went up. 
it's because the purchasing power of the dollar went down. The value of gold isn't really changing. It's the value of the monopoly money in constant decline, managed decline. They call it inflation, man-made secret tax that we all pay, managed decline of the fiat currency. As that ratio continues to widen, let's say gold goes to $5,000 an ounce, $10,000 an ounce. It will become so obvious, so apparent to everyone that the currency has failed, that there's a major problem. Part of why the value of gold continues to increase relative to the price of a U.S. dollar is because people are buying gold. Because they don't believe in the U.S. dollar. They're exiting the dollar, which puts downward pressure on the purchasing power of the dollar, okay? Because it increases the supply of dollars, right? You're putting your dollars for sale. So I think what happened is the government had to say, look, we got to find a giant honeypot for these people who are skeptical of the system to put their dollars into that won't exaggerate the ratio between gold and fiat currency. That's what I think they did. I think they said this. If people buy XRP... Or Bitcoin. Then they won't buy gold. And if they don't buy gold, they won't drive up the the, the price of gold relative to the dollar. And therefore, the exaggeration between those two things won't be so apparent to people. And therefore, the honeypot is designed to to, to suspend the upward trajectory of the price of gold relative to the U.S. dollar. This is why I say crypto is a honeypot. It's a, it's a CIA, NSA honeypot. It's probably a Treasury Department honeypot. And it, it's not designed to last forever. It can't last forever because eventually people will wake up to the fact that it's imaginary. It's not real. It's surreal. It's ethereal. It's invented, ex nihilo, out of nothing, created. So, so people will eventually wake up to that fact, but in the, in the medium term, the intermediate term, people can gamble with it, right? That's what, that's what investing in crypto is. You're not investing. It's not investing. It's gambling. Investing means you're sharing a risk in a venture to produce a good or a service that people need. You're sharing in the upside and the downside. You're drilling a well. It might be a dry hole. If it's a dry hole, you lose money. If you strike oil, you make money. That's an investment. Gambling is when you say, I don't even know what a Bitcoin is, but I'm going to buy them because I think that it's going to go up. That's speculation. That's gambling. So that's... The difference here, anyway, so there's no such thing as a crypto investor. There's a crypto speculator. There's a crypto gambler. 
That's what is drawing people in. It's legalized gambling. So it's immoral from that point of view, but it's also immoral because it is fake. It's not real. We have to be in touch with our five senses, with objective reality. We experience reality through our senses. And and this digital asset, so-called, it's not even an asset. It's not real. But people are being coaxed to buy it because it's a honeypot. It's a giant honeypot to keep trillions of dollars out of the gold and silver markets. If gold and silver were allowed to trade where they really are, if the if Fort Knox wasn't flooding the market with gold to keep the to artificially suppress the price of gold, if crypto investors, i.e. speculators, who who rightly want to find an exit from the US fiat currency from out of to get out of the dollar, if these people wanted to get out of the dollar and crypto didn't exist and so they said, "Okay, well I am going to buy gold." If all that capital chased gold, we would see $4,000 an ounce, $5,000 an ounce, $10,000 an ounce. And that would be the end of the currency in these United States because the exaggeration between those two things, the ratio of an ounce of gold to the U.S. fiat currency would be so pronounced, it would be so absurd that people would say, this currency has failed. All right, so that is my take on crypto. Uh, I'm I'm sorry for the detour. I didn't think it'd be a 30-minute detour into Coinbase laying off 18% of its workforce as the, as the executives prepare for a recession and crypto winter. But we do have to get ready for Wisdom Wednesday. I know that Brother Andre is here. You're, you're with us. Are you with us, sir? I am with us. Oh, man. How awesome. I am so excited. Uh, you know, I've never talked to you before. I've, I've, I've tweeted with you. I spent the first hour. <laughs> I spent the first hour talking about. Okay, all right. I'm glad you listened because I will. This is this is the topic that I really want to talk to you about, um, which is so-called free speech. So I'm glad you heard that whole preamble because I I, didn't, I wanted to fill you in. I wrote I um not to be the guy that quotes himself, but just to to catch everybody up. I wrote the following in LifeSite News. Quote, Is so-called freedom of speech a worthwhile goal? Does everyone really have a right to say anything you want? Do people have a right to be wrong? Do blasphemers have a right to insult God? Are lies protected speech? If so, by whom? Whether one consults Blessed Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors or Benedict XIV's Quanta Cura or even searches a bit earlier when in 1832 Gregory the Four, 16th condemned the, quote, license of free speech as absurd, erroneous, and a pestilence more deadly to the state than any other. The issue seems clear. Brother, do we have a right to blaspheme God? Do we have a right to be wrong? Retrograde and behind the times were actually more like prophetical of where this kind of thing leads. Yeah. Yeah, they were definitely ahead of that's, time. That, that's my take. <laughs> and I, I'm not a libertarian. I have libertarian friends. Um, and obviously, because of the 
you know, absolute um, evils of the modern state, um, you know, the per the person who's anti-statist is going to have a lot in common with us. <laughs> um, I'm sure you have a lot of libertarian friends. I don't know, but um, I'm just guessing. But most of us do because you, we have common cause with a lot of them because of this. But when you look at their principles, which are essentially what the church has condemned as liberalism, both economic liberalism and also, um, uh, you know, liberalism in, in, the, in the social sphere as far as governance goes, then they are really advocating for the very license that you're talking about, these, these, a whole row of popes condemning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't get over the, the language that, uh, that the popes have used. Uh, it's absurd. It's erroneous. It is a pestilence more deadly to the state than any other i mean th this this goes back to um and we and we and we did zero prep for this <laughs> right so i'm putting you on the spot right i'm totally just like blindsiding you but one of my favorite devotions is the devotion to the holy face and mm -hmm. the devotion to the holy face of jesus which was saint Teresa's um, favorite devotion is in reparation for blasphemy and profanation of holy days our our Lord, when uh, I mean, I mean, when we receive the Ten Commandments, first of all, they're they're in order, you know. And like people are fond of saying, like, oh, you got the First Amendment, and in case the First Amendment doesn't uh, work, then you got the Second Amendment, and they're in order of precedence, they're in order of importance. I don't know if the if the amendments to the Constitution are in order of importance or not. Maybe they are, and if they are, then that then that could be analogous to you know the Ten Commandments, which may be look the first three commandments are all about God. And then it's about how we treat men for the second for the for the second half for the for the, the latter seven, but you know how often, brother, do you hear from the pulpit, or you know, are people concerned about the mortal sin of blasphemy, of profanation, of idolatry, of skipping mass on Sunday? Like we hear quite a bit about you know being nice to people. Uh, we hear about racism. We hear about. Uh, you know, using naughty language. Definitely, the sixth, sixth and ninth commandments are, are are things that are important. But we, I, I don't, I never hear anyone talking about what what uh, King Saint Louis the Ninth was so concerned about. He would rip your tongue out if you were a blasphemer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you talk about the Ten Commandments being in order, and the um, obviously the, f the commandments of the first tablet are um, more important than the, ta the commandments of the second tablet, and one, two, and three all pertain to God, um, four to ten all pertain to our neighbor, beginning with parents or your first neighbors. Um, and uh, there's a, there's clearly an order there, and when we get the order of rights right, then we get uh, our behavior right. And, um, it, you know, God's rights come first. And if, tho if those priorities aren't there, then we don't, we absolutely don't have um, a grounding for pursuing the other commandments. Uh, because how, how can you actually, you know, I mean, I, I realize that love of God and love of neighbor sort of have this sort of interpenetration. So St. John says, how can you love God whom you don't see if you hate your neighbor whom you do see? So hating the neighbor kind of, I mean, yeah, the love of neighbor is kind of a litmus test to whether we love God or not truly. But if you don't love God first, 
then your love of your neighbor has no foundation because the whole concept of the the second great commandment of the New Testament is that you love neighbor for the love of God. It's the foundation upon which love of neighbor rests. Otherwise, love of neighbor is what? It's sentimental? You know, it's we're talking about a theological virtue here. We're not talking about liking. We're not talking about attraction. We're certainly not talking about um, sexual attraction. Um, and, you know, you can... You can um, love your neighbor with theological charity uh, when you don't actually like him and when you find his 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 company uh, irksome. You know, I'm sure there are lots of people on earth who are irksome to you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I've never had that experience. Ob- obliges you to love them, right? <laughs> I, I I get along perfectly well with everybody. I mean, I just don't know what you could be referring to. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so let's tie guess, this in. I guess I hang out on Twitter too much. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. So, so speaking of the tweet, the tweeter, so Elon Musk, he's the white knight, supposedly. He's being propped up. He's coming in. He's saying, I want Twitter to be a free speech platform. I want everyone to be able to say anything on on the Twitter, and then and then he follows that up with like a string of tweets that are all like, uh, let's say off color to at a minimum, right? And it's like this is this is this really what he means by free speech? And you know, I I I agree with you. I have a lot of libertarian friends, libertarian Catholics, especially conservative and and traditional Catholics, tend to be libertarian as a default until they discover uh, the era of libertarianism, but. But notwithstanding that fact, it's really, really hard as an American Catholic, and I, I have felt this perhaps as deeply as anybody. So I swore an oath to, to protect and defend the Constitution of these United States, put my life on the line twice overseas, Iraq and Afghanistan, took 60 men there and brought them home. I want to believe in the Constitution of these United States so badly. As I read it now as a Catholic, though... And this has been a this has been like a ten year struggle. I can't wrap my mind around the fact. What? How? You know what I mean? Like, there's a temptation to say, and I think we know a lot of Catholics who are like, I'm a I'm a Republican first, and I'm a Catholic second. And I think that's really the default mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And they say like, freedom of speech is good because our Constitution says it's good, and freedom of religion is good because it allows us to be Catholic or whatever. Um, are you flying a plane? <laughs> Yeah, you know, no, I'm not actually. I, I made the mistake of opening my windows, thinking, "Well, school's out, so we won't have children screaming in the yard." But you know, I, I didn't count on the plane, so I'm just going to reach over and close my window as you're speaking. No, Sorry about that. No, no worries. I'll, I'll finally, I'll, I'll land the plane and actually ask my question of you. How do we get to the point? Is my question. How do we get to the point where we say, "Look, um, how do we thread the needle between admitting that freedom of speech?" is an error but but not be not be portraying ourselves as like you know fascist dictator authoritarians that the left would immediately attempt to portray us as for you know for for just uh, repeating the truth that error has no rights yeah, you know, it's a tough one, and, and and I've been struggling with this for like, I don't know, 20 years or something since I've actually been thinking about these things, since I was actually, um, I mean, maybe it's close to 30, since I've actually w- was introduced to the teachings of the popes on these things. I think the key is this. When the popes are speaking about the social order, um, they're speaking about something which can't be 
they're speaking about the the proper ideal that should exist. Period. I mean, I understand that it's it's they're giving absolutes, um, but the, the these are not ideals that can be implemented realistically speaking in a non-Catholic society. Um, I mean, I guess in the best of all possible pluralistic societies, um, there would be sound an agreed sound thinking on some of these principles and we can implement them but I, I think such a society would be you know at the verge of becoming completely catholic anyway so i think what i, I mean for for us the priority and i'm speaking for my community the priority is getting the faith to people first because it's only when you have the faith and when you render to god what are his dues that you grasp the obligations towards God that exist in the society as a whole, because the, the the social rights of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, are essentially the rights that we all have to owe to Him in our in our hearts and in our families, in those small societies of which we're a part, in our parishes, chapels, whatever oratories we go to. Um, it's that writ large over the rest of society. And I think a lot of Catholics, especially traditionalists, who get enthused about the church's social teaching, which also enthuses me, um, I think a lot of them make a mistake of attempting to put carts before horses, as if this is something that can be implemented um, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a broad way. Uh, in society, obviously, in the meantime, but, you know, as we're heading towards uh, the conditions which would be conducive to implementing the full social teachings of the church in any given um, temporal society, we have an obligation to li live it ourselves and to to you know, for instance not participating in the usury, right? You've been talking about that very eloquently. Um, I, I like it, by the way, when you talk about economic things, because you have not only the Catholic ideals, but also what a lot of us lack, and that is the actual um, real-world financial knowledge to be able to criticize the system on its own terms. Um, but we don't, we, we, we can't change all that stuff until there's enough people whose hearts have been changed so that they understand the order of precedence of love of God and love of neighbor. And therefore, ju you know, justice has all these demands that absolutely you cannot fulfill if your ideal is this libertarian concept or if your ideal is this sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, Republican uh, with a capital R mm -hmm. concept of uh, just just the, the typical slimy partisan politics, which is, you know, they do it just as much as the, the guys with the D's behind their names do. Um, so I, I really think it, I, I think it's a matter of incrementalism uh, by way of you know converting society at large. But I also think it's a matter of educating the Catholics to understand that these are the actual ideals. How we get from point A to point Z uh, with the full implementation of Christ's uh, social reign, that that's a matter of d debate as to the best ways and means. But everybody should be agreed in principle that you can't implement these things fully until there's an, an actual um, Catholic society to do it in. And obviously, Mike, you and I know, given the crisis in the church, um, if we attempted to do these things now, our biggest enemies would be the bishops. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> that's an understatement. 
Uh, so many ways, so many places we can go with this discussion, and I know I only have you for another fifteen minutes, brother. So what I want to what I want to do is ask you some practical questions about what you just said, because it, I think you're ex- I think you're a hundred percent right. We are not going to wake up tomorrow and have the the Catholic monarchy, mon- monarchical state, the Catholic Empire of the United States of America. Right? <laughs> you no, know? No. We're not going to have a Catholic king. We don't even have a royal family, okay? We, and, and we're not even close to having groomed one. So, and, and you know, some people think that you need an, some kind of intermediary step, just politically, to get from A to Z um, with, you know, with corporatism, uh, sometimes called fascism, a good old-fashioned American strongman to sort of like just bind people together, establish the culture. Meanwhile, you know, of a, a it takes a hundred years to to um, I think train a royal family for the burden of Catholic governance. Um, and it's not like we have a Habsburg, you know, just waiting in the wings. And in fact, you know, I love the Habsburg's family and I love, I love Carl von Habsburg. I was a blessed in the church, <laughs> but, uh, yep. many of the living Habsburgs, I would not want them as my King. Right. <laughs> so no, but... <laughs> no, 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 no. Some of them, some of them are okay, but no, I know. I know. Um, wow. Yes. Edward, Edward is pretty good. The Hungarian guy. The, the, he is. Yeah. But, he, um, he's, he's good. I know his son a little bit. I, I he, he goes to mass at T he, he goes to to T- Thomas Aquinas College in the New England branch of Thomas Aquinas College, which is 20 minutes away from us, and every once in a while he's serving mass when we go to mass there in the traditional rite. Um, so yeah, he, Paul, Paul Habsburg is is one of those. But yeah, there's I think there's only a handful of royals out there who have sound principles. Many of them have bought into the very revolutions that dethroned their ancestors. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and it'll be interesting as just as a case study to watch the British monarchy to see if it even survives the handoff from Elizabeth to, to uh, what is it, Aunt, Prince Andrew. So, um, yeah, I, that, that'll, be, that'll be fun to watch. But, but again, like, I think your point is if we're going to do it, we have to do it in spite of the bishops, in spite of Vatican II, in spite of the, the Constitution and, and sort of like how people are today. Uh, so the, the, the ideal... It's just that it's an ideal, and it's and it's theoretical and it's ethereal to us because we've never experienced it. And uh, my here's one here's one of my big uh, holdups with with the Catholic monarchical movement. And tell me what you think about this, brother. I think that Americans who talk about it are really really disadvantaged because we don't even have it as a patrimony that we can point to at all. It's nowhere in our history. At least European monarchical movement, like in France and in Italy, you know, these folks have some notion of it. There's some grounding, some permanence to it. Um, and, you know, you, you can drive in places in France or in Ireland or whatever, and you can see, like, in the roundabouts, statues of Christ the King or Our Lady. We don't have anything mm-hmm. like that here in these United States. So everything that we say... It's it's almost to the point of I would call it LARPing, which is a derogatory term, but but it 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 almost is. It's almost a LARP. I, I think some of it I think some of it is LARPing. I think also I think we Americans, especially modern Americans, not so much the the, the early early founders and early I don't mean the actual founders, but the, the ones who were, you know, just your independent farmers and everything. We have a, 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 a um, we're all statists. I mean, we all think, oh, there's a problem. The government has to fix it because we've been indoctrinated that with that. That's not the kind of um, subsidiarity loving 
society that you have in Catholic social teaching. Um, the, 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 that, that the government has to fix every problem. And St. Thomas Aquinas even says that the, the, the government need not outlaw all sin. Um, he struggles with this, not struggles, but he takes on this question in the Summa, should the government outlaw all sin? Should the state outlaw all sin? And he says, no, only those principal um, sins which endanger society at large and he would include things like usury. He would include things like adultery, right? Those things that actually like like uh, are foundationally undermining of a Christian social order. Um, we don't we don't think that way. We think if there's a problem, the the government has to fix it. And I think that's part of the reason why we're not ready for a Catholic monarchy. We would expect far too much of a Catholic monarch. I also think that. The United States uh, uh, are too large for, to be governed by one monarch. It's an empire. I mean, already just looking at the continental United States, it's an empire. It's not a, a nation state. It's too big. And um, I mean, my, my personal opinion, and yes, this is incredibly speculative, is I hold that there's a sort of catastrophic model for how we might get sound Christian government here uh, in the in this uh, new world, um, and it's it's only it's my personal opinion uh, is, and I and I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong by God Himself, is that the only way we'll have anything like genuine Christian government here is after passing through a period of sort of chaotic feudalism, um, almost like what happened at the with the fall of the empire. Um, when and, and what happened, you know, the, sort of the monks came and started rebuilding things. You had the Irish monks that came uh, and helped to re-evangelize Europe. And you had, of course, the Sons of St. Benedict who did so much. Um, and th there was a slow leavening effect and Christendom was built and they had the blueprint, if you will, of St. Augustine's Civitas Dei, you know, that, 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 you know, Charlemagne had read to him frequently and they said, well, let's implement this society here. Um, I, I can, I, I don't see that being implemented from the top down when we consider what we've got on the top in society today. And, you know, look, you're pointing to Elon Musk. You know, scripture says, put not your trust in princes. I think we can translate that in the modern speech, put not your trust into billionaire oligarchs. Mm -hmm. um, people who are cheering this guy on. I mean, I felt the same about Trump in the early, um, uh, in the 2016 elections. It's like, why, what, how, do, how do we trust this billionaire populist who, you know, St. Jerome says most rich men have either inherited ill-gotten gains or, or gotten gains ill themselves, right? Um, and it's not that I'm against wealth, you know, I don't think all rich people are evil, but I'm very cynical about a New York businessman, a real estate mogul, um, who comes in, into office as, as, a, as a populist. I was cynical in the beginning. I deliberately put down my cynicism and started sort of almost carrying water for him. And then, of course, when, when, when Operation Fat Warp Speed came out, all my cynicism came rushing back. Um, and it, I just think it's all shadow play, all, all shadow boxing, the whole Republican-Democrat thing. It's mostly shadow boxing and the, the real powers in the oligarchy until those guys are either dethroned, which means um, reduced to penury or, you know, to take, have their wealth taken away or converted 
we're not going to have um, a, 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 a society whose elites actually um, are willing to go along with a Christian social order. Uh, when the uh, apostles evangelized, they would approach kings, princes. I mean, our Lord told them, you know, don't be afraid to be hauled before kings and princes and governors and judges. And they witnessed to these people. And there were many, you know, St. Francis Xavier goes to to. China, uh, or goes to Japan, uh, goes to India, and he went after the elites. Now, it's not like he didn't go after everybody else, too, but they tried to, to make it so that the elites of society would be converted, and that would help, there'd be a tremendous boon to spreading society. You know, this is why St. Francis Xavier goes over, essentially, as a, an official of the Portuguese government. That was the pretext under which he, he went to the East to evangelize. So I think, Mike, that, um, you know, the only real chance we have of something that's going to be lasting is if we do convert these elites, uh, if they do, and if, and, and if they become true elites in the sense of, you know, noblesse oblige, they get this idea of Catholic chivalry. They get this idea of nobility of character and nobility of virtue along with, you know, the nobility of being, you know, whatever, modern aristocrats, oligarchs, whatever. Um, I think it'll take that approach. But, you know, we, we, we're going to have to be in gear for the slow steady, which is what um, St. Benedict did. You know, St. Benedict's idea wasn't, oh, I'm going to build Christendom. No, St. Benedict's idea was, I'm going to worship God, and I'm going to render to God his rights. We're going to engage in the Opus Dei, the, 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 the work of God, which was the divine office, the divine praise. And we're going to institute schools of sanctity. That's what a monastery is to St. Benedict. We're going to institute schools of sanctity. And in that school of sanctity, we will render to God, our, our king, his rights. And I, I think only if you have enough of such work being done quietly and steadily are you going to have that slow leaven where society becomes truly Christian. It's not We're not going to vote them into office. That's not going to – it's going to – I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that we American tragedies are so precipitate. You know, we think vote the bums out. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Final question for you in our last five minutes together, brother. Um, it's it's a it's a as you look at the Vatican II documents on you know freedom of religion and 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 all that. There's no way to reconcile the doctrine of the king the social kingship of Christ with with the the the, the, the documents of Vatican II. So you set those aside just for a moment, setting 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 all that aside. Given the practical things that you just laid out, all, all of the obstacles in our way for actually, you know, re-enthroning uh, Christ as King, um, a lot of times you may hear from trad priests from the pulpit they'll say, "Well, you know, Christ needs to be the King of your heart," and it sounds kind of like wishy-washy and mushy and stuff, but I think there is <laughs> there, there's a truth to it Un- until and unless. We make Christ the king of our homes anyway. Um, that's the only thing we, we can really do at this point, right? I mean, and that's, that's I think, the, uh, maybe uh, restating what you, ha- what you already have, have said, but I think for, especially for us lay people with, you know, with, with a, a van full of kids, how can we make Christ hmm. the king of our homes 
uh, in hopes of someday making them the kings of our neighborhoods and then our parishes and then our counties and then our states and that, you know what I mean? Like, how, how do we how do we do that? Well, we're in the month of June, which we know is not the month to celebrate the vice of sodomy, uh, but the month of the Sacred Heart. And, you know, we have this wonderful phenomenon of the um, Sacred Heart devotion of enthroning the Sacred Heart in, in your home. And that's a way of saying, okay, I, this, this is a concrete way. I, I'm honoring this image of the Sacred Heart. And there are all kinds of promises associated with this. And um, I'm, 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 we're going to render to him his rights in our home. This place will be like a little, a little um, oasis of people who give our Lord Jesus Christ the King his rights in this home. And we observe, we observe the commandments, we love one another, um, and we do make him king of our hearts, we make him king of our home, and we pray for the day that society at large will accept his gentle and loving reign over them. For the, for our own good, right? And, but 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 first for his glory, and um, I mean that's that's the work of a lifetime. I mean, yeah, you can have a priest, you know, enthrone the picture, the, the 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 icon, the image of the Sacred Heart in your home, bless your home, and you have family devotions around that. Um, so that's something concrete that you can do. But it should be the kind of thing that's lasting and deep and transformative so that it actually alters your life, right? It's not just saying, okay, yeah, I, I have the Sacred Heart thing, and, and, and I like that. It, it, it should be much deeper. I mean, our Lord's, um, you know, read what our Lord said to St. Margaret Mary. We read how the, the Sacred Heart transformed her into the great saint that she became. She saw her own heart being plunged into the furnace of the, the, the Sacred Heart of Jesus and, and being purified. I mean, we should we should realize that that's what the Sacred Heart is doing. It's there to to transform us, and if it can transform individuals, if it can transform families, then we can hope that it can transform society. And there is a connection between the Sacred Heart of Jesus devotion and the the kingship of Christ. So I I think you know it, the, the 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 you know the French royalists, the French monarchists are big into the Sacred Heart cultists, right? Um, and they're not and they're not the only ones either. Um, so I do think that uh, that's that's a large part of it. Another another part of it too is uh, you know sanctifying social contacts. You know that we that that fathers teach their children really truly that God's rights come first. And this includes how you approach friendships. You know, um, we we don't have uh, you know our, our idea of friendship is not a Christian idea of friendship anymore. It's just it's oh I like him. Oh we like to do things together. Okay, well that's a basis for friendship, but true friendship is something much more. And you know this this idea of amor benevolentiae has to enter in where you actually will that other person's good. If you truly will that person's good, if you truly have a a notion of what he's called to, right? If he's baptized and what he could be called to if he becomes baptized in in eternal glory, then your friendship is on different terms than just oh you know he's a neat guy and we like to hang out. So I think I think that's something that needs to come from fathers of families, so that there's this idea that we we actually sanctify social bonds. We don't just 
we don't just try to have social bonds that don't drag us to hell. <laughs> you know, right. if, if you're not moving uh, 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 against the gray, if you're not moving up upstream, you're going to be taken with the current. So you can't just be content to be not damned. You have to work, strive for salvation, right? And this includes in our, you know, where wherever you spend your time, right? If you're with your friends, your coworkers, whatever. Try to do whatever you can to sanctify that, so that devotion that you have to that image in your home, and and to obviously to the prototype of the image, our Lord Himself, carries over into those things. And again, this is the work of a lifetime. This isn't a uh, you know, thirty days till thinner thighs kind of operation. <laughs> Real wisdom for Wednesday, brother Andre Marie. Thank you so much for uh, for. The discussion today, man. I really, I really appreciate it. I really loved it. I've just become aware of the fact that you can gift a one-year membership to anybody you want to to the Crusade Channel uh, for any price that you name. To, I mean, that's incredible. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna gift this to five people. Now I'm gonna lowball. I'm gonna lowball uh, Mr. Church here. Uh, but I. This is a great way to grow the channel. That's, that's a genius idea. Um, so I guess you can give a one-year Founders Pass. It won't renew on your credit card or account. Uh, all of us can afford to do that, so I hope everybody does do that. Thank you again for listening. It's been an honor to fill in Mike here from Restoring the Faith Media. You can find me at RestoringTheFaith.com or Restoring the Faith Media on YouTube. Tonight, I'm interviewing Bishop Athanasius Schneider on his new book that is coming out on Sophia Press, The Springtime That Never Came. Thanks for listening. All right, Mr. Mike. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. <laughs>